was gonna say last year I came to Milwaukee and we did we went on the ghost tour, which was well, very so good. Then, that feels like then Pete has to come to Chicago and do something. Is there any good ghost tour in Chicago? I'm sure. I'll find us one. Come to Chicago. Let's go see ghosts. Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am one of your hosts, Pete Romberg, and, you know, it would have been really smart if I had thought of a catchy catchphrase for myself, but I haven't. Um, So joining me, as always, is my fellow co-host. Martha Sullivan, teen librarian and daytime video game farmer. Ooh, Stardew Valley. Yeah, I bought a Nintendo Switch Lite over the weekend and then spent literally all of Saturday playing Stardew Valley and watching The Great British Bake Off. Nice. Oh, that is an awesome It was day. a good day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I... then Bill made cookies yesterday, so. <laughs> I got one of my friends back into Stardew Valley. He had been playing the Fire Emblem whatever, um, and then I he just, like, looked at my farm once and was like, all right, I guess I'm back in immediately. So yes. every time I fire up the Switch, that's what he's doing. And now um, I can now that I have my own switch, I can play Stardew Valley co-op with Bill and our other friends mm. so we can group farm. Interesting. <laughs> this hole goes deep, you guys. <laughs> uh, well, joining us this week is returning guest uh, Lizzie. Hello. Welcome back. Go ahead. Introduce yourself. Um, today I'm a basic fall bee, because it's the first day of fall, and I got the new pumpkin, like, sweet cream cold brew at Starbucks, which is... It's so good. Delicious. It's really good, so... <laughs> Were you wearing your Ugg boots in your North wait. Face? Uh, I did no. not wait for it to be <laughs> fall to have one. Well, it's also, like, 70 degrees in Chicago still, so, you know, iced fall. <laughs> All right, well, we are going to be talking all about Stephen King and Stephen King adaptations today, but before we do that, we're going to go through what is stuck in our heads this week. Uh, So, Martha, let's start with you. What is stuck in your head? Oh, well, as I was saying before a little bit, I've had a very video gamey couple of days. Um, What is stuck in my head is not a game that I have been playing, but one that I have been watching my husband play, and that is Untitled Goose Game. I've been hearing (laughs) about this on the Twitters, but I have no idea about it. Uh, So basically, you play a goose. (laughs) Okay. And you, you, you do goose things, and you try to cause as much havoc as possible. You get a to-do list of things that involve, like, you get a to-do list of things like steal a toy boat, break a dartboard, (laughs) dump a bucket on someone's head. (laughs) But since you're a goose, all you can do is walk around, flap your wings, honk, or move things very basically. Like with your head or whatever. Yeah, so within those structures, you have to cause as much chaos to this small group of people as possible. Uh, it's wild. Um, and uh, very... Is Bill playing with the sound on? Yeah, uh, yes, of course. 
are you gone it, like have you gone crazy yet from the honking no <laughs> i love it actually like you hear this very um not peaceful but like idyllic classical soundtrack that is occasionally interrupted by goose honking <laughs> <laughs> uh what what is this for uh, he's playing on Switch. I think you can play on Steam. Um, I don't know if it's on other consoles. Sure. Cool. Uh, and also, thank you for explaining to me this thing that, like, exploded across Twitter over the weekend. Uh, yes. <laughs> that I, I didn't have enough energy to investigate myself. Yes, it's a goose sim. <laughs> you play a goose. All right. Uh, well, Lizzie, what is stuck in your head? Um, so... It's been a lot of Stephen King. So in terms of non-homework related uh, things I've been into lately, I'm just like delighted that Fleabag won so many Emmys. Mm. And so I've been watching a lot of Phoebe Waller-Bridge videos and acceptance speeches and just like being really thrilled for her today. She just sounds like a delightful human being. Yes. yes. And the second season of Fleabag is so good. And I want to watch it again now. Do I need to have seen the first season to... Yes, okay. absolutely. All right. Because the... it's like a total of 12 episodes. <laughs> I, I know, I know. It's not a big commitment, but... but the I... second season, like, I think they're necessary for each other because the first season is very rough to watch. And so it makes sort of the grace of the second season hit a lot harder mm. so yeah i mean and it's total 12 episodes so like you're fine <laughs> right yeah yeah 12 hours of content i assume they're hour-long episodes or like they are minutes. not they are half hour long Ooh. and yeah the like the economy of storytelling is also pretty phenomenal she won a, a writing emmy and it was very well deserved i would say nice uh yeah uh Totally blanking on that show that we were literally just talking about. Fleabag. Um, <laughs> wow, that was really bad. Um, Fleabag has been on my, like, watch list for a while, like, basically since the second season came out, but always, like, at number two or three spot, so it kept, keeps getting, like, bumped down. But since we're almost done with Dark Crystal, maybe I'll go put that higher up on the queue now. Well, what is stuck in my head this week is an album. Uh, surprise. Uh, it's the new album by Bat for Lashes called Lost Girls. Um, Bat for Lashes is kind of like a, a synth pop, dream pop kind of artist, a uh, little gothy on the around the edges. And Lost Girls is like a full on eighties. Uh, like I think she described the inspiration as like eighties teen vampire movie vibe. Um, so it is very synthy, very like dark and brooding, but also with a little bit of like poppiness going on as well. Um, I, I think if, if any of those terms sounded vaguely interesting to you, especially like 80s poppy synthy, um, it's definitely one to check out. I've been, uh, listening to it a lot while reading, um, say Salem's Lot and It, uh, which felt very right for the time period. Oh, I can't read to music with lyrics. Oh, hmm. I have, I have been reading a lot to the Call Me By Your Name soundtrack. Hmm. Mm. Uh, I guess just not the Sufjan uh, songs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I always pause. I pause to listen to the um, Shadows Over Gideon, and then I start it over. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, the songs are so good. 
It's so sad. How can you listen to that? Because <laughs> it's good music. It is good, but it's sad. <laughs> All right. Well, that is going to do it for what is stuck in our head. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, it's going to be all Stephen King. Welcome back. So today, sort of in honor of It uh, Chapter 2 having come out fairly recently in theaters and a uh, long boiling discussion between Martha and I about Stephen King and uh, how we kind of accidentally made this a summer of Stephen King, like rereading or consuming for the first time, uh, we're going to be talking all about Stephen King and Stephen King adaptations. Um, we assigned for homework... Uh, the book Carrie, which was his first published book, and then both of the film adaptations, the uh, 20, uh, 1976 version by Brian De Palma and the 2013 version by uh, Kimberly Pierce. We also assigned the two new It movies, uh, 2017's It Chapter 1 and this year's It Chapter 2. Uh, and a special bonus of homework, uh, we tried to get as far through the book of It as possible. Um, before we get going on this long-winded discussion, um, big old spoiler tag, we're, those were the official homeworks we're assigning, but we might be talking about anything Stephen King has ever touched, um, so if you, you know, want to not be spoiled on random things, pay close attention for if we suddenly slip into, like, The Shining, or, uh, 11 whatever whatever, um, Yeah, I have no idea when Kennedy got killed. (laughs) Um, I know it was November. Uh, So that's your big old spoiler warning at the top, and now we're going to go into it. Um, Martha, it sounded like you were about to say something. Oh, I was just going to say, I've just been marinating in Stephen King all this summer. Like, between the Barnes & Noble podcast and listening to The Stand and, you know, the It movie, like, it's just been... I just, like can't consume enough Stephen King stuff, which has really been what? No, no, sorry. Go ahead. I did not mean to. Oh, I was just going to say, I've just been like wallowing in it. It's been pretty great. Before we get... Ah, sorry. No, go ahead. (laughs) No, I was just going to say summers for Stephen King anyway. (laughs) Correct. Well, speaking of, why don't we uh, go around real quick and be like first exposure to Stephen King. Like famously, I think he's an author that people start reading frequently when they're like a little too young to be reading. Um, but it's it's that like perfect bridge of like, oh, this is a little uh, too much, but also like the right amount of too much. Um, and And so that's sort of an interesting vibe for him. And because he loves writing about uh, making his main characters authors who write... Uh, you know genre books i think that that often like he uh, addresses that in various ways in his works um so when did you guys first like start reading stephen king i can tell you exactly i read the eyes of the dragon i found it in the house of a girl i was at a sleepover party for um i was in sixth grade i think wow and i that was what i did that night i 
was in a separate room of the house from the entire other party and I read The Eyes of the Dragon um, instead of engaging with absolutely anybody at that party, <laughs> which turns out to have been incredibly on brand for me. <laughs> uh, the Eyes of the Dragon, I think, was originally published as a Richard Bachman book, mm. um, but now is published under uh, Stephen King's name. Has has he done that with all the Bachman books? All, like, four of them? I, well, I believe, yeah, I believe now, like, later editions of them, they're now just being published as Stephen King. Right, like, the, the jig is up. Yeah, that was, I don't know, we're not really talking about that <laughs> right, right now. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the reason, the reason he was doing that was because when he was initially publishing novels, there was a cap on how many books one person could produce every year. And he was writing too much. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's insane. And also very on brand for him. Yes. <laughs> um, well, so I actually first started, my first exposure to Stephen King was when he wrote a column in Entertainment Weekly called The Pop of King. Um, I didn't read my first Stephen King novel until like five years ago, honestly. Mm. Um, I also started with a Richard Bachman novel with, um, The Long Walk. And then that was like my first summer of Stephen King. And I just went through them like crazy. So you are the person who started reading him at an age appropriate time. Only yeah, you. but like, I don't know, because I feel like things like. Like, it honestly would have been a lot... I think stuff would have been a lot more scary. Like, I know, Martha, we've talked about this, and we'll probably talk about this now. Um, but, like, sort of the... Like, I I enjoyed it a lot, but I do... I find found it less, I think, viscerally scary as an adult than it would have as, like, a teenager. Oh, absolutely. I read it for... I got it as a birthday present for my 13th birthday. Um, It was terrifying to me like there were hmm. scenes in that book that made me physically ill because they were so scary to 13 year old me and me as an adult like I read it and I go that's real gross or that's pretty creepy and then I close the book and I go to bed and it's fine because I'm a grown-up human <laughs> um, but yeah there are definitely moments and I think that that's appropriate to because he's talking about the fears of children mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so things that are frightening to children are not necessarily going to be frightening to adults in a in like a fictionalized way right obviously if some giant dinosaur-sized bird tried to eat me that would be pretty scary <laughs> right but reading about it happening to someone else in a fiction right. book is like eh. yeah i started i think it was so either the summer going into eighth grade or the summer going into freshman year um and I, Thinner was one of the first ones I read, speaking of Richard Bachman uh, books. Um, but I cannot tell you what the very first one I read was. Um, I have very strong memories of reading it uh, in the summer up in Michigan, um, and many other Stephen King books as well up there. Um, and I, like, I tore through all of, like, the, you know, 70s and 80s King, um, the good and the very bad. Uh, but I kind of stopped at some point in high school and, like, had not read any Stephen King since then. 
Um, and so definitely have not read literally any of the stuff he's, like, written this century. Um, but now I feel like I should go back and read some of those. Especially because they get good reviews. I know, I know I have said this before on this podcast, but Pete, you really should read 112263. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Th that is in my Goodreads, uh, you know, need to read bin. Um, I just like I had not read any Stephen King in so long, and now that it's been jump started again <laughs> this summer, I'm like, oh yeah, no, I really should read that like next. Um, it is very long. Yeah, they all are. I know, but, but I mean, like 900 pages. I feel like now versus when I was a teenager is different. Mm, sure, like you it have is. things to do. Yeah. 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 I mean, I say that while I'm trying to read War and Peace right now. So, like, yeah. It's also taken me months and months and months to get halfway through that book, so, uh, which is very different than yeah. uh, as a kid. So specifically, we wanted to talk about adaptations with Stephen King because he has been adapted a bunch of times mm -hmm. um, and with varying degrees of success. So approaching the topic of like adaptations in general, he seemed like a pretty solid choice to look at the good the bad and the ugly um like you can find you can find moments of incredible adaptation and also just trash all within king's work um we did not look at the mini series of it starring tim curry tim curry yeah. yes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah um because i didn't care all <laughs> <laughs> well, and also also because I think the two parts of it are both representative of, like I said, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, but I do think we should start our conversation off um, first by just saying what, what do we think makes a good adaptation, generally? Not specifically Stephen King yet. We're going to get to that in a minute. But what do we look for? Like when we hear that something we love is about to be adapted into um a movie or a tv series what are we what do we hope for what are we looking for slavish devotion to everything that i think is important to it and nothing else you're fired <laughs> <laughs> pete is canceled <laughs> um I mean, obviously, jokes aside, I feel like bad adaptations are ones that are, like, absolutely slavish to the source material. I think it is someone someone who understands the spirit and the, like, energy of the thing being adapted without feeling completely beholden to the source material. Yeah, I, I was... agree. I'm on record on this podcast as saying... You know, adapting something is not an automatic, like, I don't automatically feel dread when something is announced as being adapted. In fact, frequently I get really excited because if it's something that I love, it's another opportunity for me to consume, excuse me, consume that story. Um, please see my incoherent excitement about the Golden Compass adaptation coming up. Yes. Um. And yeah, I, I think that keeping, maintaining like tone or purpose, like maintaining the goal of the story is more important than specific events or um, details. 
Because I think it's it's also mm-hmm. important to remember that we're frequently talking about different mediums that have different needs and restrictions. Mm-hmm. Um, Lizzie used the term spirit, and that was the same word I was going to use. Um, because, as you say, like due to the nature of changing medium, there are some things that work well in a novel that would not work in a film adaptation or TV adaptation. Um, to the point where entire scenes would need to be rewritten to make them work. Um, the novel has, uh, you know, so much more chance for interiority and expl- like explanatory uh, s- uh, digressions that just don't work when filmed. So as long as the like the the spirit is there, uh, I'm okay with changing basically anything. Um, that being said, I do think that like it, you know. If you're adapting a work, you should be following the general, you know, skeleton of that work, unless you're intentionally changing something up for reasons. Um, and if they're good reasons and you execute it well, I'm much more forgiving of changing the like the framework. Um, whereas if they're incoherent reasons or you're not executing it well, then um, I'm much less forgiving on that one. Is there a specific adaptation you're thinking of there, Pete? Because that sounds like a very specific like thing you have a a grudge against <laughs> um i mean all, like it chapter two the middle part i think was one where they changed the framework and i understood why but i wasn't into it whereas the ending mm-hmm. they changed it and i was all all in on it uh, like i, I oh, thought that the, oh. the film version of the ending worked better than the book interesting because i would have said that the ending of it chapter two changes the message changes part of the message of that story Hmm. Because, well, well, we'll yeah. get to yeah, it. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Pete, you and Liz both had mentioned wanting to talk specifically about what makes a good King adaptation. Like, now that we've kind of covered what makes a good adaptation, how how would you further define what makes a good Stephen King adaptation? Well, I'm not sure if I can define what makes a good Stephen King adaptation. I just was going to mention that because I, I was thinking about it as I was, you know, I've been consuming a lot of this written. Um, he writes in a very unique way where he does a lot of, um, it's all in a running monologue where he does that parenthetical interruption of like, of the character's monologue with like a subconscious monologue. Um, and he also writes in like a very childlike, like nursery rhyme way. Like he loves the like, sort of, like, pitter, pitter-patter kind of rhythm to his writing, um, which I think does a lot to, like, especially in It, to get to that, like, the childhood nature of the fear. And, like, you know, when the kids are children, it makes sense that they're, you know, talking in that sort of, like, rhythm. Um, so getting, like, that sort of interiority, which he is so good at and which are, like, so crucial to his books, I think is basically impossible in a movie. Um, mm-hmm. But then the flip side is that, the the plot that he's writing is like pure awesome pulp uh which is good for movie adaptations as long as you can translate like that writing if you can make his his writing work in the mouths of like actors um then you and then like the general structure is going to be a really solid like pulpy horror movie for you Yeah, no, the interiority was definitely something I was thinking about. I would say less true, actually, for the adaptations that we have picked to talk about, just because it and Carrie, I think, are both very 
plot driven and um i mean it especially is you know, very relational but like i was saying on, on um sorry off mic before we started recording like lucas and i just watched misery and i think misery is a really good adaptation because they figured out how to expand the world beyond the room of two people without making it feel like shoehorned into the movie i feel like 11 63 the um, miniseries adaptation i felt like they did a less successful job with that personally when they because i think both of these adaptations introduced other characters so it wasn't just like the main character's thoughts for the whole thing is like right. voiceover or something um and so i think that's a big part of other Stephen King adaptations, but not necessarily something that will, I think, be impacting the works that we're talking about today. I haven't I also heard I also heard very good things about the adaptation of Gerald's game. That was which exactly is another, what I was gonna bring up. Yeah, it's just another extremely internal story and takes place like centered on one woman who is handcuffed to a bed. <laughs> right. Um I have not been able to bring myself to watch it because I know how she escapes her handcuffs and mm -hmm. I don't mm -hmm. know that I can handle that. Nope. So, <laughs> but that it sounds like was received very well. Yes. So, um, yeah. Well, and that's, that's the same director that they is doing Dr. Sleep actually. So, um, oh, cool. yeah. Mike Flanagan who also did Hill House. <gasps> oh, well, cause it's starring, um, What's her name from Hill House? Uh, Carla Gugino. Mm -hmm, yeah. Um, and like that's the thing where I think it it's crucial to get an actor who can like do that interiority externally. Um, which th thinking of like an it, Bill Hader definitely did a fantastic job. Um, some of the other like everyone else was fine but not great, and uh, Jessica Chastain had literally nothing to work with, so. That was unfortunate well, for her. And to rewind um, a little bit, I think Sissy Spacek also does an incredible job with that in Carrie. Yes. Because mm -hmm. yeah. she, yeah, we can we can get into why I think she gets the role better than Chloe Grace Moritz, who I do love. Yeah. In she, general. She's a good actor, but didn't uh, do the role right. Yeah. Um, so do we want to do we want to get into Carrie? Yeah, I've got nothing else for King's adaptation. Let's, uh, let's I, I, do it. I, I will just say, but, uh, last thing, I guess, is the other thing with adapting Stephen King is that he has produced a bajillion books, and some of them are good, <laughs> and some of them are not good books. And so when you're adapting something like Dreamcatcher, like, you're already starting very far behind because that's just not a good book. Um, or trucks. Yeah, right, right, exactly. <laughs> like, there are many Stephen King adaptations that are bad because the books they're adapting are bad. Um, so that that's the other final Stephen King caveat, is, like, <laughs> pick a good Stephen King book and then adapt it well. So, speaking of good Stephen King books, uh, Carrie. <laughs> Excellent segue. <laughs> um... Carrie, so just a real quick side note, Carrie is the book that I actually recommend to people who are like, how do I get into Stephen King? Hmm. Because I think it is much more accessible than a lot of his other stuff. And also it's so much shorter. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I had never read it before. Um, so, and oh, I actually started. How did you like it? 
Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. I started reading it after I had watched both the movies, so I'm like, you know, you know the plot beats, but it, it was, I really enjoyed the structure of it, of sort of like half multiple narrators and then half, um, you know, evidence. Um, I also, like, Stephen King definitely feels like someone who, like, fully believes in psychic powers, and I love any time he goes on a digression about, like, the biochemical nature and the genetic recessiveness of telepathy. Uh, it, yeah. it makes me laugh. So, for any of our listeners who are not familiar with Carrie, Carrie is the story of Carrie White, who is a 16-year-old high school student whose mother is extremely fanatically religious um, and has raised Carrie in a very um, conservatively religious household. Um, and spurned spurned on by an incident uh, when she is, I think, 16, she gets her period for the first time, which is a traumatic enough event, both because she doesn't know what's going on um, and also is teased pretty mercilessly by the other girls in her gym class. Um, it awakens in a stronger and more intentional way uh, these psychic powers that she has. Um, Carrie has been bullied basically her whole life um, and then kind of inspired by how badly um, one of the other girls feels about both Carrie's kind of perpetual bullying and then this incident in the shower. Um, Sue, one of her classmates, has her boyfriend take Carrie to prom where one of the other girls who feels wronged by Carrie uh, pours a bucket of pig's blood on her head, which inspires her to destroy uh, the town that she lives in. There are other details in there. <laughs> um, that is kind of the general skeleton of it. I can't wait um, for but... you to try to do that when we get to it. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> um, but yeah, one of the cool things about the book that has not really been adequately replicated, I don't think, in any of the adaptations that exist, is that the story is being told through... Um, interviews and court hearings and essays and books and things that were written after the event all about what they call the Carrie White phenomenon. So basically there was an investigation into the destruction of this town that led to um you know a scientific study of this telekinetic phenomenon um which I think eventually also kind of leads into Firestarter, one of his later novels, mm. which is also about a girl with telekinetic powers, although she sets fires like the title. Um, Pyrokinetic. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, this was King's first published novel, I believe. It was, and the uh, Brian De Palma movie was the first King adaptation. Oh, wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the the initial adaptation, which came out, you said, in 1976? Yes. Stars Sissy Spacek as Carrie. Um, Piper Laurie as her mother. And then a bunch of other people who I... <laughs> Including didn't... baby John Travolta. Oh, and baby John Travolta! <laughs> <laughs> as the boyfriend of the girl who dumps blood on her. Billy. Uh, Billy Nolan. Yeah. Uh, who is a gross rapist and domestic abuser in the book <laughs> i mean like half of stephen king's characters are uh yeah i really enjoyed the de palma movie um i'm not entirely sure i'd ever seen it before uh obviously knew what happened but um 
De Palma has a very unique like visual style, and it was like fascinating to see that that it was still the case in '76. Um, and the the mass the prom massacre I thought was really well shot. He did it with a split screen effect, um, and Spacek just standing there with her eyes bulging um, as everything was going to chaos around her was like is still a powerful and haunting image. Oh, so, and honestly, just so much better than in the 2013 adaptation when she's like. Chloe Grace Moritz, yeah, has her like hands up and is like, like Eleven from Stranger Things. It's like you don't need to do all that. Sissy Spacek didn't need to do all that. She just like yeah. gave a look. So I, I, <laughs> I thought about at you, and you set on fire. Yeah, I thought about that as I was watching it. Um, where like if someone actually had telekinetic powers in the year nineteen seventy or or eighty, maybe they would just be looking around. But now that we have so much media that shows telekinetics using their hands, I almost think like a modern day person with telekinetic powers would be forced to use their hands because they think they have to. Uh. Well, and they may have been trying to get into that a little bit when they show Carrie like doing some research in the library on her telekinesis in the um, 2013 version. Mm. Um, But I don't think it was enough of a point to justify how stupid she oh, looked yeah no i i'm not saying that the movie was having these thoughts and trying to execute that i'm saying i was having these thoughts as i was watching it <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think the movie was doing that as an intentional uh you know take on it um well one one question i had uh that martha you alluded to you might have a response for um i watched the two movies back to back which might not have been the best idea uh and as I was watching the 2013 version, all I could kind of think was, like, why does this movie exist um, other than simply to make money? Uh, so you said you, you had some thoughts on that. So I had heard that the new Carrie was intended to be not a remake of the original film, but another adaptation of the book. So, like... An updated adaptation. Mm-hmm. I will tell you why I don't believe this. Yeah. And it's it's the scene where Carrie kills her mother. Mm-hmm. Because the books or the both of the film adaptations have a very religiously inspired scene or like a religiously inspired visual where Carrie um pins her mother with a number of sharp implements from the kitchen. And in the book, she just stops her heart. She, she crucifies her. In the movies. In the movies, yes. Yes. Yeah. So my feeling is, if you were going to go back to the book, there, there are too many moments in the 2013 movie that directly reference the original, I think, for that argument to hold water. Yes. And I think it was I think it was an interview that I had read with the director that I can't find right now. If I can find it, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, I had been really excited about a version of this movie directed by a woman mm-hmm. because I think that there are a lot of things that they could have dug into about like the female experience. I don't know that they do that. Uh, you didn't think that uh, De Palma's. Uh incredibly objectifying uh gaze was doing a whole lot in the 76 version (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, that was a <laughs> fascinating opening scene. Just <laughs> softcore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, real. I assume that's what like women's um, locker rooms are like, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Obviously. I just. Um, I yeah. also. I feel like so I I did not watch the 2013 version all the way through, but do you think? In 2013, it would be believable to you that a girl would get her period and not know what it was. They make the same reference in the book of like, oh, it's so unbelievable that in 1979 a girl gets her period and doesn't know what it is. There are um, there are a couple of there are a couple of factors in the book they kind of touch on it because in the book i believe they explicitly say that she was homeschooled until very recently mm-hmm. so if if the character is being homeschooled through those levels where they teach sex ed i believe that i think they needed to say that in the movie cuz yeah i agree with you lizzie there were there were a couple of places where they kept like the language of yeah. the 1970s film and of the book in a way that I didn't think fit with moving it to a modern setting, like, like particularly some moments of dialogue where I was like, no one talks like that. Yeah. yeah. And like Sue not going to prom because she doesn't have anyone to take her. It's like, who cares? Whereas in, in the 76 yeah, movie, I, there was a d- distinct line of like, you can't go to prom if no boy takes you. Can't you can't go without a date. Right. Um, well, and actually, I think this kind of gets into a thing that I was thinking about with Stephen King adaptations is that I, I mean, I know he's continues to write things. And I think like Dr. Sleep is written as a contemporary novel. And so I think we'll be in a better adaptation. But so many of these books are so like, nostalgic, like, mm-hmm. and we can talk about this when we get to it. But I think it's, it's interesting when you take books that and Carrie, I mean, it was he was writing contemporaneously, but I but that was in the seventies, and I don't know. I think that there is taking a book of his and trying to just put it in modern time is not always incredibly effective. Yes. Uh, yeah, and I'm I'm thinking of of some definite parts in it, chapter two, where it doesn't really work, or it feels like off key. Um, just because it's mm-hmm. set in like 2015 or whatever, um, instead of 1982 or whatever. Right. You mean like the whole opening scene? <clears throat> yeah, like like the entire opening scene. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Carrie feels like that a little bit to me too. And again, he's not. It's not like he said it during the 50s, but I do feel like it is a story that just plopping it into 2013. I don't think it translates that well. Well, and they they tried to update it with, like, the YouTube thing or, like, the the cell phone video thing, but, like, that didn't really go anywhere. No, they needed to commit to that more. Yeah. I I think that they had some good ideas about what what that story would look like in 2013, but it just felt like set dressing. Mm -hmm. It didn't feel like they actually were making an intentional statement about it. Like... There's no way if somebody uploaded that video to YouTube that they would not be expelled. Right. Like, right. <laughs> that was that was a moment where I was like, you need to follow through on this thing, because I, I do think it would be believable that some idiot teen would film that. Oh, and totally. I even believe that some idiot teen would upload it to YouTube. But then I think 
you can't treat that the same way as like the punishment that um, Chris Harkinson gets in the book. Right. Because right. it's not, it's not an equivalent at that point. Right. So I, I do want to talk a little bit about Julianne Moore. Cause for me, she was the high point of the movie. She plays her mother and she is acting in a straight up horror movie. Like, <laughs> yes. There was a scene, I think right when Chloe Right when uh, Carrie gets home from the prom and she's like crying and covered in blood, there is a scene where Julianne Moore skitters by in the background where she looks like somebody's, she looks like a Japanese horror movie accidentally got into the <laughs> scene. It was so bizarre. Um, and yeah, I thought that all of her moments were very effective, but it was not the same movie that Chloe Grace Moritz was acting in, which was an almost more straightforward, like, teen coming-of-age drama. The, I I agree with you that I was loving Julianne Moore as a screen presence and as an actor and, and doing everything. I didn't like the choice they made of having her be, like, a full-on, like, self-harming, all like, uh, flagellating all the time. Um... There was vague vibes of that in the book, but they, like, dialed it up to 11 in this, and I'm not sure if it, like, I I wasn't, like, super on board with it as a move. I I did only because it was the only part of the movie that had teeth. Mm. Like, it was, like, the only times I felt threatened in this movie was when Julianne Moore was on screen. <laughs> <laughs> she was bashing her own head against the wall, yeah. Like, because yeah, if, if she's I doing think, that, she could do anything. I think Chloe is just, I think she was too likable. I think she was too charming. I didn't believe the same way that I believed that Sissy Spacek was an outcast in that high school. Like, Spacek is, she looks and acts like an alien in that movie. Like, <laughs> this is a normal thing that humans do. And I... <laughs> I think that that sensation of otherness is kind of necessary for you to understand why she destroys everything at the end the way that she does. Because, like, in general, I thought people were too nice to Chloe and I thought she was too nice to other people. So when we got to the big, like, climactic destruction part, I was just like, why are you killing everybody? What What is happening? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, SpaceX, like, had the, like, look of someone who had just been beaten down by, like, by her classmates, by her mother, by, ever like, she was just a, like, broken person from the first scene um, in a way that I think was really crucial to then sell the ending. Um, well, but and, and then also, her happiness, like right before the pig's blood, she also sold that as well. But also, she looks like I don't know. I'm I'm trying to tread a little bit carefully here because I don't want us to stray into she was totally justified for what she did, um, because. That's a really dangerous conversation. Right. Um, and also, I think it's important to remember that Carrie kills a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, and, like, no matter how 
poorly she is being treated you know they're all children and they overreact to everything it's a very cool motive still murder sort of deal and i think what sissy spacek gets right about that that chloe grace moritz doesn't is that she has already a little bit of that kind of monster not monster-ish quality but like inhuman quality Mm. does that make sense yes like i wanted like i wanted to be chloe grace moritz's friend in the movie so when she freaks out and starts killing people i didn't i just felt um i didn't believe it (laughs) it wasn't like apart from wholly apart from this is a horrible thing that's happening, I didn't feel that that made sense for her to do character wise. Like not obviously this is the correct choice, but like I didn't believe that her character would have done that. Well, I mean, I think part of it, too, is that Carrie, as a character, it's like you're supposed to feel bad for her, but you're also supposed to kind of not like her. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like when the gym teacher is talking about how she, like, also was, like, I, like, wanted to slap her and, like, shake her. And it's, like, I feel like that's part of, like, you need to invite the audience onto that side a little bit as well. Because if you just feel bad for Carrie then it does become like a tale of righteous vengeance. And that's not really what the story is. Exactly. The, the De Palma movie does a bit of a good job with that because like the first person she kills is her gym teacher who is like, who has been trying to help her and all the rest. Um, so at that point it's like, oh, it's not righteous vengeance. It's like murder everyone. Um, yeah. Whereas they don't do that in the 2013 movie. So it gets a little like uh, fuzzy. Well, in the 2013 movie, also, particularly the scene where Chris Harginson and Billy Nolan die Ugh. in the car crash, is, Just like, Hollywood slowed access. down. I don't know. It is it is slowed down and, like, focused on in a way that ended up being kind of, like, torture porn-y. Yeah. It, yeah, because her face goes through a freaking windshield, and you see it, and it just stays there. It was gross and so unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, again, it was, like, ten minutes long, and it could have been two minutes long. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, one thing, thinking, and I think this will segue nicely into It. Um, so, do we have any other thoughts on Carrie before I make that move? No, go for it. All right. So one thing I was thinking with this carry with the two carry adaptations is both of these works that we've been doing deal a lot with uh, child and teen bullying, um, which, you know, we all went to Oak Park River Forest. Bullying happened, but not nearly to the extent that it is like endemic in King's stuff during this period. Um, mm-hmm. So one thing that felt a little weird in the 2013 version was like, I don't know. In the 70s, sure, I can totally see everyone making fun of Carrie, whatever. In this version, the sheer amount of it in, like, a clearly, you know, middle-to-upper-class-seeming high school felt a little off. Um, And then in It, there is a 
an insane amount of childhood bullying going on. Um, obviously, Derry is a terrible place to live or raise a child. Uh, but even then, I think it's more like King sort of like being nostalgic or anti-nostalgic for the 50s. And I can fully believe that that sort of, uh, you know, thing was happening in the 50s uh, with much more frequency than it does now. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I'm, I'm I, just raising that. I better. would say... No, I actually, I would disagree with you about the amount of bullying being inappropriate in the new Carrie movie. Mm-hmm. I I wish that there had been more. Hmm. Like, because, showing me that there's more? Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, I wish there had been more on screen because, like mm-hmm. I said, it for me it goes down to I, I didn't believe her reaction to how I had seen her be treated on screen. Sure. Like... Uh- yeah, I I agree with that. I guess I'm getting at, like, does it feel, and you would probably have the best um, knowledge of any of us, like, does it feel accurate that in a high school like that, somebody would be bullied to that extent? I think in that form, Pete, because I think what I struggle to find credible is that people would, like, dump pig's blood on somebody at prom. Right. But I do think that, like, the vicious online bullying yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. but i do think that sort of like ostentatious display of that and then also like with the 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 opening scene with throwing the pads and the tampons at her and like filming that like then that starts getting into child porn and i'm like i'm not trying to be like nitpicky here but i feel like i think that carrie could be updated in a really interesting way and i just but it would those are sort of the specific things they would you would have to change that to be really more reflective of like teen culture and kid culture which i think is sort of what you're also getting into with your comments on it right like it would focus on on like you were saying online bullying much more than like slapping someone's books out of their hands in the hall kind of of old school bullying um well let's segue into it then where there is a lot of childhood bullying by a clear maniac with the switchblade um, who's carving his initials in people's uh, stomachs and nobody cares because Derry is a terrible place to raise a family. Um, um, which actually I think is one of my first comments that I would say about the movie adaptation. And I think one of the reasons that I really found, I'm sorry, not to just like jump right in. No, but, jump right in. Um, I think that both it chapter one and it chapter two really fail to show you how dairy itself is completely rotted out as a place and like how it is interwoven in the fabric of the town. Um, yes. I think that it was, it was one of the things that I, I found most disappointing about, especially the second movie. Um, Cause I know we've kind of hint, talked about the first opening scene and I think without really establishing how it as a force has just made dairy to be this like absolutely rotten place that has infected everybody in it the hate crime feels really out of place with the rest of the movie because the rest of the movie is very much just like clown kills kids kind of a thing yeah um the director uh Andy, Andy Muschietti, or yeah, however you say it. Yeah. Um, said that he, he wanted to include that scene because um, King basically took it, like, other than Pennywise showing up at the end, it was an actual event that happened in a small main town, like, as he was writing it, so he wanted to include it. 
Um, and mm. then or Muschietti wanted to, like, also include it for that reason. Um, which, like, I understand every step in that decision-making process, but I still think it, it, it felt off. Uh, I think for the reasons yeah. you're are, saying. There are a couple of things in the second movie, particularly, that they include but then don't follow up on mm -hmm. to, I think, the movie's detriment. But real quick, I did the plot of Carrie. Uh. <laughs> Why don't you? Uh. Why don't you tell us what it is about? Uh, it is about uh, a killer clown who murders children and then gets murdered by them. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, no it is cheater. <laughs> uh, it is about the losers, a group of seven um, in nineteen in the book version in the fifties, in the movie version in the eighties. Uh, growing up in uh, the town of Derry, Maine, which is infected with an evil, uh, almost like a cancerous alien presence that uh, cycles every 27 years, um, sparking a slew of mostly child murders, disappearances, etc. as it feeds, uh, culminating in a final uh, orgy of violence of some sort, and then it slumbers again. Um, it was defeated by the losers as children in the 1980s in the movie, which is the plot of the first movie, um, the losers discovering and confronting it. Um, and then they all leave Derry, other, uh, except for one of them. Um, and they all forget what happened to them. So then 27 well, years... But they promise, they promise they, to come back yes. if it isn't actually dead. Yes, they, they promise to come back uh, using a blood oath that when they... Uh, adapt this movie again in 20 years uh, and set in the 20 teens <laughs> is going to look really out of place. Um, uh, so they all promise to come back, but as soon as they leave, they slowly start forgetting because that's kind of what Derry does to you. Um, the new movie, uh, which is set in, I think, like 2016, um, and in the book is set in the 80s, uh, it's 27 years later, and it has come back and is starting to feed again, and so they are called back to Derry, where they must remember what happened in the past, remember how they defeated it, and then confront it and defeat it for the final time. Um, and they do, uh, but not without loss. That was very good. Yes. Uh, also, it uh, is generally Pennywise the Dancing Clown. So that's why you've got all the creepy clown In imagery. one of his incarnations. Yes. It takes the form of whatever you're afraid of. Right. Which I feel was better articulated in the book than in the movie. Yeah, we um, watched uh, chapter one like a week and a half ago, and halfway through, Marn was like, wait, so like it can just be anything? Like a Bogart? And it's like, yeah, it's basically like a Bogart. So here's the thing. Except for actually, it's a spider. Right. A lady it is a spider. <laughs> it is a space spider from outer space. Who's a lady? I felt, I felt the loss. I felt the loss of the lady space spider in the movie quite a bit. We got some so spider action going the, on at the here's end. Here's the thing. Here's the thing that I want to address first off. The plot of it is nonsense. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And a lot of what happens in the book is complete nonsense. Yes. So I feel that many of the decisions that they made when adapting it were trying to create some kind of sense of logic, like trying to impress some kind of sense of logic onto the story. Because it's a big budget, big release studio horror film. So... A lot of the explanations that you get in the book, I totally believe studios would not buy. 
<laughs> Such as a as giant space spider. But whether they did that successfully or not, because there were a couple of moments, I, I rewatched both, or I didn't rewatch, I rewatched chapter one a couple of days ago. And I remember the first time I watched it, I still really like it. And I think that of the two, it's the stronger piece. Mm-hmm. But there are still other things, there are still things in it where I'm like, I kind of see where you're coming from, but I don't think you accomplished what you wanted to. Um, one of one of the, the moments that I didn't really appreciate is when they fight in the movie. When they come out of the yeah. house on mm-hmm. Wall Street the first time right. and they each have other. their like explosive fight. Um, part of it, well, and just to dip back into Henry Bowers for a second, I think taking his teeth out in the adaptations was a mistake. Yeah. Um, he's not nearly scary enough. And I, I think that having a human threat be pretty terrifying was also important to the feel of that book. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that fight that they get into where they are like temporarily separated until Beverly gets taken by it, which is a, mm, which yeah, it's another change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, was kind of a one of the, it was a change that I think loses sight of what the book is about. Beverly, I think, always was is the weakest character in the book, just because King is like. Anytime she's ever mentioned, it's in a vaguely sexual way, which is a little bit creepy when it's a 12-year-old girl. Um, and... No, not even 12. Yeah, okay, she great. Even been. even better. Um, and, and so she doesn't have a lot going... Like, she has a lot going on on paper as a character, but not a whole lot under the skin, unlike a lot of the other... Um, and then in the movie, it's the same, but almost even worse, um, where she is just given nothing to do except for get captured. Yeah, in the movie, she exists to be rescued. In yeah. the book, she exists for them all to have underage sex with. Mm-hmm. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> Listen. <laughs> there came a point in the book when I was like, oh, no. <laughs> At some point, I'm going to get to this scene, and right. I don't want to. Right. Yeah, and then you just, like, turn the pages, and it's fine. <laughs> Um, I will say I am glad that they excised uh, almost all of the um, uh, her abusive husband and um, Bill's wife, like who show up in the book basically to serve that role of like people getting captured and like additional human um, uh, villains, I guess. Um, Not not the wife, but the husband. I I was really disappointed that they... um cut out a lot of that especially since the first scene we get in it chapter two with beverly is Is, her being abused by her husband right and then that never that's another one of those moments where i feel like they threw it in and then it doesn't get to pay off at all yeah i i i agree that like as as that was happening i'm like oh great we're doing this arc um i guess it like the movie was already two and a half hours long which was too long um so i was okay that they excised that uh they could have cut out a lot of the middle. They could have cut out a lot. Um, I generally liked the second one, not as much as the first. I thought it was like a solid B afternoon in the theater kind of situation. Um, An afternoon in the theater with two beers. <laughs> nice. I wish I'd had a beer. Yeah. It, I, you know, 
it's like I wish I knew I was doing the podcast at that point because I'm like, oh yeah, that movie, that things happen, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I joke. I remember most of it, but I will say I think that just like as a just sort of whole experience, you know, the beer is just it just washed over me. The well, movie. It's so long, like, and no, and the middle so part long. is long. The middle is a straight up like video game MacGuffin hunt. No one needs that in their movie. No, I thought the middle dragged on a little bit. I'm never in favor of splitting up ensemble casts. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I did not really like the fact that they took a nonsense appropriated ritual from the book and turned it into a nonsense appropriated ritual in the movie. But like a different nonsense appropriated but like ritual. Differently. <laughs> right. Yeah, differently appropriated. Um. I mean, I feel like the movie has the same issue that I kind of have with the book is that you have this thing that's like this elemental evil, which I know is focused on dairy. It's not like the whole world. So the scope is smaller, but they're just, I feel like there is no good way for them to fight it in a way that feels satisfying. Cause I feel like the book is similar. It's like really very feels anticlimactic and also i'm like you guys didn't have to really do anything you just sort of like went for it and it worked out because of the power of your group so it's i don't know well and the way that they again the way they defeat him in the book makes no sense (laughs) yes so then the way that they defeat him in the movie has to make visual sense and ends up being disappointing because it's like oh you just yelled at this cosmic evil until it died (laughs) Uh, I, I will say, and um, Martha or uh, Marn commented on this uh, with the first one, and I was thinking about it watching the second one. He's really bad at killing people that he wants to kill. Like, for a yeah. cosmic elemental evil, he is not good at killing children. <laughs> I think the biggest difference between Chapter 1 and Chapter 2 is that I felt like Chapter 1 had more internal consistency. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was scarier. Like, the the scares in it stuck with me more. Um, And maybe that was because it was easier to like put myself in the position of the kids. Um, I don't remember if we were on air or not when we were talking about this, Um, but just the fact that kids are scared by different things that are not always like, don't always make sense. Like a impossible Um, version of a leper. Yeah, and like in like the adult in the adult chapter, that Paul Bunyan statue coming to life was never going to be scary, right? And also, then the CGI looked real bad. I, so I, yeah, <laughs> so it wasn't going to be scary, and then they didn't make it look scary either. So yeah, but yeah, and then in the second one, it's like it was m- much less consistent. In the first one, I can buy that Pennywise isn't killing them immediately because he feeds on their fear. So like, right, and well he seasoned meat, all that they, good stuff. And they and he doesn't think they can hurt him at that point. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit of cat playing with its toys. But then by the time you get to the second movie, like. I I don't understand why he confronts them in different places and then just doesn't tear them apart. But that's yeah. that's true in the book too. Not really. I mean, he he does all that like messing with them when they're cuz they do split up in the book um and kind of wander around and he sort of like pops up and messes with them there and uh you know, he's messing with them in the library when they're all telling the stories. Um 
It's like it's yeah, lower key messing with. Like it maybe because it's written, say, it doesn't I feel. Almost, I almost got the feeling that those were moments where he wasn't actually there. Mm-hmm. Like it was his power doing that stuff. Sure. But then in the in the oh. movie, like he's straight up talking to, like he's he's there. He's yeah. there, right? It's not just like a balloon that says like "haha." I mean, which is going to be the problem of separating the adult and the kid stories because I feel like the kid story is just where most of the scary stuff is, and mm-hmm. and I think them remembering that and it's like reconnecting with those intense emotions you feel as a kid that you don't feel as much as an adult. And so like, I, I feel like I've said this many times, but I understand why they made that choice. But I also think that it just was never going to be an incredibly effective adaptation by separating and doing a completely linear story. Do we? And then also in, in chapter two, we get enough flashback stuff that I was like, why didn't you guys just make a three hour movie? Like a braided yeah. three-hour movie. And it's because they wanted six hours of space to tell it, but... And I, I think it almost needs... I don't think you could do it in three. I mean, you could. Well, you I... can tell any story. Sure, in You two can tell hours. any story in any amount of time. You just have to make choices. Right, right. You have to decide what's important. I, I think it'd be tough to tell this story in three hours. Um... Which leads me to my question of, like, do we think this is a good adaptation? And also, is it even possible to adapt it well? Like, is this the probably the best we're going to get? Or when they inevitably redo it in 20 years, will they do a better job? I feel like it is just one of those things. Because I I feel like this with other Stephen King stuff as well, that I think that there is something to reading about the images he's describing that loses something when you put it on screen. Mm. Um, kind of like the Lovecraft think, thing too, like random eldritch horror works better when you're conjuring the, what the horror looks like rather than when like Hollywood is. Yeah. Well, and I think that we see this, like, you know, I know Martha, you have your opinions about the shining, but I think the shining is a movie like Kubrick was able to create fear by drastically changing it because hedge animals from the book were going to look silly on camera. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and, true. I, and I, I just, I think that it has a lot of those things that are scary that it's scarier to read about that stuff than to see it. And so I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say too because the second one had such bad CGI. So it's also I'm like, am yes. I just saying that because the visuals that they created were really weak? Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, it, when you describe some of the things, it's like it's terrifying to read about Mike being chased by that giant bird. But if you put that on screen, I don't know if it has the same impact. Yeah, I, I think even with the best CGI in the world and the best action director, it's still gonna look a little bit silly because it's like a boy running away from a bird. Right. I do think at at the very least, I think they could have improved. Um, I think there were a couple of scenes in this in the second chapter that would have been scarier if they had sized down the effects a little bit mm-hmm. rather than like I'm thinking specifically of Beverly's scene with the old woman in the apartment. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Like, 
if they had done that with an actor in like CGI touched up makeup and just not had to make her so larger than life. Yeah. Like that could have been a really creepy scene. Cause like there's a moment where Beverly's looking at something and the old lady goes like scuttling in the background. Yeah. That gave me goosebumps. Yeah. Like that was very effective. And I think that they just, they tried to make things like bigger than like larger than life. And if they just pulled them back and made them a little bit more practical. Get Doug Jones, put him in the, uh, the pale man suit, have him go to town. <laughs> well, and then I think, the, I think the giant clown spider at the end also suffered from that because he looked so ridiculous that I, I wasn't... A, like, that confrontation should have been, like, at least tense and it just wasn't at that point i was like oh this is an action movie uh so this is an action set piece so it's fine that he doesn't look scary because he's just the big cgi monster at the end of the action movie um which definitely like reinforces the idea that chapter one is much scarier um it's almost like alien and aliens where one is a horror movie and the other is an action movie i was there was a little bit of that vibe going on Um, and also they just should have let Bill Skarsgård be in more of it. Mm-hmm. I thought the scene with him under the bleachers with the little girl was very scary. That was scary. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I think they could have cut out the carnival scene where he eats the little boy entirely. Yeah, especially because at that point I was very fed up with Bill. Like, I, I, I wrote something down. I'm like, why is Bill the, like, the ostensible hero here? He is... Not a good character. Less Bill, more Ben. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, anything else about it? I like we've obviously been talking around it, like you know, but there's been no through line to the conversation, just a general discussion of the movies and the book and all the rest of it. Um, so is there any like specific ideas we want to get to that we haven't yet, or does that feel like a pretty good place to wrap up? Oh. No, the one thing I wanted to talk about, we touched on it earlier. Um, I'm interested to hear you talk about why you liked the ending mm. of the movie. Because for me, part of the part of what makes the ending of the book so meaningful is that they still forget. Like after it's all over, mm-hmm. they still leave and they're still not able to remember. And I think that that's really important to understanding what the book is saying about how people process trauma. Hmm. So to have them in the movie, ha- to have it be pointedly, oh, now we're remembering everything and we still get to be in each other's lives seems very counter to a lot of the messaging in the book to me. I, I get what you mean about processing trauma. Um, I, I Going back to what we were talking about earlier and how like the book doesn't make any sense, uh, it would not make sense for them to have defeated it and then just like magically started forgetting again in the way they had the first time because i i always read it as like that dairy forgetfulness is sort of part and parcel with its like nature um and so getting rid of one would get rid of the other um but they do i mean in the book they do very pointedly they do forget right and 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 what i'm saying is like that seems weird like it's the we're trying to apply logic to a thing that is inherently like illogical um and i liked 
this application of logic more than than the book's lack of application of logic, I guess. Um, especially, well, but I don't think it's I I don't think it's illogical in the book. I think it's very purposeful. Mm-hmm. But like, I think it, it's, well, it, I I see what Pete is saying though because I do think that it's like there is what you're saying, Martha, about like the books treat like how it's talking about trauma. But I would say if you just look at like why they forgot and like now that the thing doesn't exist anymore, it doesn't make sense to me that they forget, even if that doesn't really square with what he's trying to say about trauma. Right. Like it'd be one thing if it's like they were you know they had forgotten because of the traumatic events they had undergone and so they're like pushing it down and like repressing it and forgetting it but it's very much a mystical forgetting um yeah that once you remove the mystical nature of it it's like well you should still remember like you should still have the scars on your hand and and all the rest because that actually happened well and i guess part of it is that in the book they had in the book there are like several other mystical forces at play so when they defeat it they haven't removed all of the magic from dairy the turtle can make them forget they don't touch on that in the movie so right i don't know just they made such a big deal out of it in the movie for them to be like i still remember you and i love you it's like "Mm." yeah sure i I can see how that would like definitely stick in your craw (laughs) I mean, my bigger issue with the ending was I'm like, why did Derry not fall apart? Like, again, that's all my criticism with how the movies treated Derry. But I also feel like it just made it feel so much smaller. Mm-hmm. Whereas, mm-hmm. like, because in the book, the town just completely, cl- like, is destroyed. destroyed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which is something I was thinking about with Carrie, too, with the Brian De Palma. Because in the book, she just absolutely destroys the town. In the movie, it's, again, it's so much smaller. Which, I mean, I think yeah, is a that, functional that was a reality yeah. of making. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But, like, I do think it's interesting that with it, I don't think that was... Maybe, maybe they did just run out of money, but it, it felt interesting it it makes like going back to what you were saying about like not showing that dairy itself is like deeply corrupted and flawed uh very well it would be weird in the movie to destroy dairy because it wouldn't feel like necessary or earned whereas in the book it's like oh yeah no like this whole town needs to go yeah i don't know it is it is so massive and there's so much in there. I I just, I don't know if there's a way to make a compelling adaptation of it. At least personally. not as a movie. Yeah. I, I think there's still, I think there's still a good argument to be made for trying again to do it as a, like an eight episode miniseries. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we're, I don't think we're looking at that possibility for a while at this point. Right. And I don't, I don't think the movies were a complete failure. I just think that, I would have made some different choices. No, like I said, like I, I enjoyed watching both of them. Um, so, huzzah, mediocrity. Yes. It's fine. <laughs> I did. I don't know if I. What did, this is related to adaptations, I promise. What did you guys feel about all the like, oh, Bill, he can't write an ending. And then Stephen King shows up and it's like, oh, you're the author that can't write an ending. And it's like. <laughs> I liked Stephen King's cameo. <laughs> but it mostly I'm just like then write like then movie like you I mean they did change the ending but I'm like well then you like come up with a better ending like I don't know I think that <laughs> so related to that um 
CBS is adapting The Stand as a new mm-hmm. miniseries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Stephen King is writing the last episode for which he will be including a new canonical epilogue ending. Interesting. For for the story yeah. as it exists. Another Skarsgård is going to be Randall Flagg in that. True, because yeah. the Skarsgård brothers just can't stay away from being Stephen King villains. Mm-hmm. I thought it was fine. I thought it could have been one gag about not being able to write an ending and then the cameo by Stephen King and that would have been fine. <laughs> like like the, the gag uh, at the beginning with the director and then um, not have Stephen King also say that. Yeah. <laughs> well, but then like three other characters say it too, don't right. they? Right, yeah. I just I think it is interesting for Stephen King adaptations because I do feel like a lot of them change the ending actually. Um, like, um, I know we we're talking well, about I... Mike about like the mist, but even like Shawshank is like slightly different than the book. Mm. Um, Eleven twenty two sixty three is slightly different than the book. The Shining is different than the book. Like I do think that's interesting when thinking about Stephen King adaptations. I but I also think that part of that is not necessarily that he writes bad endings, but that he writes very cerebral endings, which mm-hmm. don't always play well on screen. They changed the ending of Cujo too, but that's because the ending of Cujo the book is mm, intolerable. Why? How does the book end? Oh the, doesn't the kid die the, in the car? The kid dies. Yeah. The kid dies. Okay, they well get him- then the mist they get him him out of the car no she gets him out of the car into the hospital and he dies in the hospital of like dehydration or something right yeah but so the ending of the mist the book is just like we left the walmart superstore and are driving into the mist forever and this is where i leave this and then the ending of the movie do you guys care like i know this is a very old spoiler doesn't one of the characters like kill everyone and then is about to kill himself when the army shows up? Yeah, except for he can't kill himself because he ran out of bullets. And so he's just going to like go out of the car and take his chances with the things in the mist. And like two minutes later, the um, the mist lifts after he just had to murder his child. And that's the ending of the movie. The ending. See, both of those. Are horrible. <laughs> are bad endings. Yes. Well, hmm. <laughs> they're, actually, they're tough the... endings. I'm not sure if they're bad endings. I'm okay with, I'm okay with incredible downer endings. Um, I would have preferred. I would have preferred the ending as it exists in the book. I think. Like I a to the mist. Oh, we're going off into the unknown. Kind of ending is not necessarily unsatisfying. Mm-hmm. But that kind of pointless, everyone is dead, and now I have to live with the fact that I did this forever for no reason, like, that sucks. Well, and if they just waited, if, like, or implied that more time had passed, but it truly is, like, he does it, and two seconds later, the army's driving past, and you're like, this is some bullshit. Sure, like, I've never seen The Mist, so I could easily see that ending being radically out of place for the rest of the movie. Yeah. But apparently Stephen King loves it and says it was better than what he could write. So, you know. Well, Stephen <laughs> King is also a nihilist. <laughs> I also think he just likes everything except for the Shining adaptation. Because, like, he loved the, the new Shining? Pet Cemetery. He loves it. Like, I feel like he just loves everything now. Well, he also didn't like, he did not want to publish Pet Cemetery. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I, I distinctly yeah, remember like, reading Pet Cemetery and being creeped out by it. Uh, I'm the only person in the world that didn't like Pet Cemetery. Hmm. Um, I, but... His his stated reason for not liking The Shining, I think, is wrong, but I understand it, which is that he's like, uh, uh, Jack Nicholson is insane from the very first scene, which isn't, like, it's supposed to be about the slow degradation of somebody uh, and alcoholism. But instead, since Jack Nicholson is already crazy because he's Jack Nicholson, uh, you lose that, like, collapse. I think the reason that he doesn't like The Shining is because it's a Kubrick movie, not a King adaptation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I do think it's actually really interesting, which I know, again, this is not helpful because you guys haven't read it, but I do think that because of how much he hates the Kubrick adaptation, it has made him revise, like, how he approached Jack as a character and, like, his emphasis on Jack actually being a good person who was just like overtaken by the ghost. I'm like, well, yeah, but also Jack was like not a good person. Right. Jack he was, was yeah, Jack was a monster. Yeah. He was abusive before um, he got to the overlook. He just, he makes a little cameo in Dr. Sleep, like at the end and he waves and it's like, Oh my God. Like, no, no, mm-hmm. I'm sorry that you just... hated like the movie adaptation, but you don't get to rewrite the character. I mean, I guess you can, it's your character, but it was... uh, I, I totally forgot until right now that Jack is yet another uh, character who is a writer, um, because yeah. that is Stephen King's favorite profession, which is also why I was totally on board with him making a cameo in it, because it's like, yeah, you put yourself in every book you've written anyway, so sure, put yourself in I the don't, movie too. I, I don't believe that Bill is his self-insert, though. I believe Bill is based off of a friend of his. Totally fair. But again, it's like, eh, one of your main characters is a writer. Cool. I got bingo on my Stephen King bingo card. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you well, guys should read and watch Misery. I think there, it is a good book and a good adaptation featuring a writer. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Have a hold, I have a hold on the audiobook that I'm just waiting to come in. Nice. Um, as promised, this has been a very long episode. We knew that going in because it's Stephen King and he doesn't have an editor and neither do we. Uh, so we do, but it's Pete and yes. Pete probably doesn't cut as much as I would if I knew how to edit. Nope. Podcasts. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to let this one go long. That's all right. Uh, but is there anything else we want to talk about before we head and wrap it up? Um, they keep talking about adapting the jaunt into a movie, and we should just probably do this podcast again if they ever do that, because the that'll jaw? be... It's the jaunt? Um, that short story? The jaunt? Pete? No? Yes? Uh, I don't think so. Probably not. Oh. Um, well, it's a really excellent you. Stephen King short story. You should just, like, honestly Google it and read it right now. I'm sure you can find it on the <laughs> internet somewhere. Um, but... You know, there's going to be Stephen King adaptations. It's about people transported to Mars. Netflix Netflix is dropping. Netflix is dropping a new one based off a short story that he co-wrote with his son, Joe Hill, called In the Tall Grass. You can find you can find that short story on I think it was published in Esquire as two parts. It is a trip and a half. (laughs) Um. The Netflix movie looks very scary. Yes. Well, the short story is real gross. <laughs> um, also, Lucas and I watched Total Recall a couple weeks ago. Also, Stephen King adaptation. No, not that's Total Philip Recall. K. Dick. Uh, sorry, not Total Recall. The um, 
The Running Man. Yes, The, the Running, running Man. man. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know why we didn't choose to talk about that today, but, you know. <laughs> Is that good? I feel like it's I one of those with, it. like, a cool pre- premise, but maybe a terrible execution. It's got just, like... Story? Uh, well, I, I've consumed neither, so... I mean, the movie is just full of Arnold puns, so, you know, that's... So your great. mileage may vary. So it's <laughs> amazing. Yes. <laughs> Chill out. Right. <laughs> All I right. Think, I think we've come to the end here, guys. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this long uh, episode. We will be back in two weeks. Uh, meanwhile, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere else fine podcasts are found. Uh, follow us on Twitter at DYDYHpodcast and on Instagram at the same handle, DYDYHpodcast. Uh, you can find us on Facebook by looking up Did You Do Your Homework Podcast, and you can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. Uh, Lizzie, thanks again, as always, for being on the show. Uh, is there anywhere on the internet you want people to find you? Nope. Cool. Anything you want to I plug? I respect that. Uh, no. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer for both of those. I don't really do anything publicly, so I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably Go the way to live guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm talking politics and pop culture. Martha, how about you? Uh, you can follow me on all the places at Magical Martha. You can listen to the other podcast that I do with Pete's wife, Marin. It updates on the same feed as this and is all about us watching teen rom-coms that are streaming on Netflix and then picking them apart and talking about how we would fix them. Or in the case of To All the Boys I've Loved Before, which was our previous episode, why it is perfect. And we love it so much. <laughs> um you can also read my newsletter, which I publish whenever I feel like it, at tinyletter.com backslash Magical Martha. And you do your Twitter and Instagram? Was I yeah, just not I'm Magical attention? Martha everywhere. All right, cool. I'm easy to find. I'm not Magical Martha on Harry Potter Wizards Unite, which is why I don't play that anymore, because somebody took my username. Yeah, that should be a crime. Uh <laughs> I have been using the same one since I was 14, sir. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh oh, cool. Join us in two weeks when we are going to be talking about guilty pleasures. Gonna be doing having a good time uh dissecting what makes a guilty pleasure and whether the entire idea is uh deeply flawed and how we should just enjoy all of our pleasures. Uh, Martha's homework is going to be A Kiss of Shadows by Laurel K. Hamilton, uh, which I am told is a sexy fairy book. Uh, And my guilty pleasure is pop music, which I'm representing with uh, Taylor Swift's album 1989 and Carly Rae Jepsen's album Emotion, uh, which both came out in 2014-2015 era. Um, Yeah, so join us in two weeks for uh, that discussion. Meanwhile, enjoy doing your homework. And until then, class dismissed. Uh, I actually have to get going. Otherwise, we will just keep talking about Stephen King. Um, so, yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Talk good to night, you guys. everybody. Good night.